But we have a, a very special guest um, here with us this morning, uh, Mr. Mike Butts. Um, most of you probably don't know Mike, uh, but most of you uh, know his son and his daughter-in-law, Daniel and Rachel Butts, who are a precious part of our church family here. And uh, uh, Mike gracefully agreed to step in last second and to bring us the word this morning. And so let me just say on behalf of, of Mark and the elders and the whole church, we're so grateful for you, Mike, and for your willingness um, to... Uh, uh, to jump in last minute. That is, I've done that before, and that's a, not an easy thing to do. And so, uh, we're so glad to have you here. Uh, Mike, Mike has been in ministry in some form or another for a long time, um, as a, as a pastor, as a missionary in Venezuela, as a, a chaplain in hospice work. And so, we're excited to have uh, Mike Butts with us here this morning to bring us the word. So, if you guys would welcome him, Mike, you can come on up. Some of you are probably wondering, what kind of guy do you call at 530 and he's available? <laughs> so, uh, thank you, David. Wow. Can you all see all right? Well, let me start a sermon in a way in which I don't believe I've ever started it. If I'm wrong, my family can correct me later. Let me just say, woo! <laughs> my gosh. You know, I, I'm seeing, I'm wondering why I'm here. Where'd Paul go? My Paul, my gosh, man, I was ready to enlist. You, know, you get a Marine up here, get him doing that type of preaching and scripture sharing. We, there, it's hard to mess up after that, isn't it? And then we follow up with David and the rest of you, and you're singing and you're worshiping together. Just absolutely phenomenal. Y'all know what the halo effect is? Let me tell you a quick story. When are y'all through? It's 1046. Y'all don't stay here till 12 o'clock, do you? Okay, you need to let me know that because I'm a traditional kind of guy. You start at 11, you preach till 12. But when do y'all get out of here? <laughs> Woo! Woo! <laughs> Throw another one in there. 11.30. The halo effect. We had a guy come from Austin, Texas one time, and he was teaching us about a green funeral. Some of you may not have heard of that. In the state of Texas and 48 other states, the family can have the right to do their own burial. Uh, some of the funeral agencies, if, if you're a part of a funeral agency, I'm not knocking you. You do a tremendous care. The, the care that they gave to Stephen and Kristen the last couple of weeks has just been remarkable. But he came, and part of what he was doing was that because some families, the cost had got so exorbitant they can't afford it. Well, in the state of Texas, you can literally take your loved one, and you can keep them in your home as long as the body is refrigerated. We're off to a great start, aren't we? <laughs> The way you refrigerate a body is the toes just got to be kept at 52 degrees. And you can do that by taking a 10-block piece of dry ice and laying it under the spine. You also have the privileges, unless there's a county, if there's a law in the city or in the county which you can't bury on your own property, that you can actually dig a plot on property. Most time it's out of city limits and in the county. Thank you, Rachel. And you can bury your loved one. So he was... His father had passed away, and he was having difficulty finding the casket. So he went to Tennessee. You can buy a pine casket for $149. Are y'all being uplifted yet? Is this just inspiring your soul? Well, while he was there, <clears throat> he went ahead and bought two because his mother wasn't very well either. He puts them on a flatbed trailer, and he's bringing them from Tennessee back to Austin. And he's the first one that described the halo effect to me. He said, if you go out in the morning... And you've got a flatbed trailer with two caskets on the back of it. 
there is a hundred foot radius around your vehicle. He says that's a halo effect. Now, from a spiritual perspective, we're in the halo effect already. You know, when the people of God gather together and they praise and they worship and they exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that no one or nothing can stand in opposition to the name of Jesus Christ, including the adversary and including demonic host. So you have created a halo effect around this place. So if I can't preach this morning, it's nobody's responsibility but mine. Right? Because there is not anything that could take place in this than what we've already experienced with the reading and the sharing of the Word through Paul, with the music that we've experienced, with communion together and remembering what God has done in our life. And Ebenezer, and we're going to talk about that Ebenezer, that place of, <clears throat> that altar, that place of covenant briefly again this morning. And then, Ginger, I, you're coming up as well. I, they, don't need, they don't need Mark. You can do <laughs> Can y'all hear that? I got bad ears, but your word and your encouragement, and more than anything, the genuineness of it, the honesty. There are difficult times in our life in which, and I'll be honest with you, I know how to fret. You know the Scripture says in Psalm 37, do not fret because it only leads to evil doing. But I have the ability and the capacity to fret. And what I have learned in the last couple of weeks, and just to give you a little bit of my story, let me ask one favor, I'll give you a little bit of my story, and we're going to get you out of here. I promised before noon. But uh, in regards to that, about, I guess it's been 12 weeks now. Has it been that long? I've been working at an agency for 12 months, I mean for nine years, and we were establishing some principles. We were putting some biblical principles in there. It's a secular organization, but we were driving them by the Scripture that, that we would speak the truth with one another, but with grace. We would speak the truth with one another with love. And we would talk about components that everybody is worthy of dignity and respect. And one of them that we would value one another. Because the biblical principle states that all of us are created in the image of God. We are worried to be valued. We, we are worthy of some decency and some respect. So we were putting all those things into place and came in one Thursday afternoon at 4 o'clock. And said, by the way, Mike, you no longer have a job. But I tell you that to say this. I, I spent the next eight or nine weeks sitting in my house. And getting on job sites. Anybody ever done that? Oh, my gosh. And then I started going back and reading the Psalms and reading the Proverbs. And it eventually ended up reading in the Gospel of John some. But I can tell you my value and my self-worth is not where it needed to be. I needed to hear then and there that my respect and who I am and what I am created and designed to be is not based upon someone else's opinion or circumstances. but based upon the fact that I'm a child of the living God. And that sonship or that daughtership is never removed and it's never broken. But as I begin to sit in there and I begin to particularly look at some of the Psalms, I realized how often people struggle with fear, how often people fret, how often people struggle. And, and guys, I just want to just be straight up and honest with you and very direct with you this morning. I know how to do that. And I also know that if we get isolated and we get outside of that sense of relationship and intimacy and abiding in Christ, And we forget where our Ebenezer is. We forget where that sense of covenant and that promise that has been made to us. If we don't somehow get back to that place of being in the very presence of God and reclaiming and calling the promises of God and doing that through the encouragement that comes from other believers, then you and I are subject to the place of getting where if you fret, it'll lead to evil doing. It'll lead to a place in which it'll isolate you not only from the people of God, but it'll isolate you from what God has designed you and created you to be. And people are subject to that. If you'll take your Bibles and flip to Genesis chapter 37, we're going to look at a couple of things together this morning. 
We're going to look at Genesis chapter 37, the first five verses, the first 15 verses. We're going to reference Psalms 37, and then we're going to look at John 14, 15, and 16. That's a little bit of a joke. We're going to pull some pieces out of that, some information out of that, and see if we can, excuse me, see if we can see what the Lord is saying to us in regards to having a better approach to life as opposed to fretting. Well, in Genesis chapter 35, let me give you just a little bit of background. You know that Jacob, he is follower, descendants of Abraham. Those promises are being handed down to him. Those same sort of covenants were made with Abraham with transition to Jacob. Well, Jacob has been in the land a while, outside of the air, close to the land where he was promised and given. And from the scripture, the implication that we look at today, that maybe Jacob and his family as well is kind of forgetting who they are. They're forgetting the place of promise. They're forgetting that, that presence in God and who they called and were designed to be. So in the midst of that, <clears throat> a tragedy happens to their family. And the tragedy is that one of his daughters is raped. If you're looking at different translations, they don't use the word rape. But in Genesis chapter 34, it talks about this king's son, one of the neighboring people, laid with Diana by force. And folks, the word is rape. That's exactly what he did. In regards to that, he, he burned after her. He had a desire for her. He wanted to marry her. But what was part of the covenant of God's people? You don't marry outside of your covenant people, right? When you get the New Testament scripture and it says not to be unequally yoked, folks, basically what that means is you don't enter into a partnership or a relationship or an intimacy with somebody who is an unbeliever. It doesn't mean that you don't go to them. It doesn't mean that you don't have friendship with them. It doesn't mean that, that you don't spend time with them because that's the only way you can be salt and light in their life. But it does say when you're beginning to make decisions and making choices about your life and who is going to be intimately involved in your life and influence and share that life with you, a believer should never be unequally yoked to a non-believer. So he comes to him and he wants to marry the daughter and the two sons, they, they devise a plan. They say, well, you can't marry her because you're uncircumcised and we're a covenant people. So in order for you to to marry to our daughter, all of you men had to be circumcised. Does this sound familiar? So then what did they do? Yeah, what a plan, right? When those guys are laying in the bed the next day, those two sons go in by the edge of the sword and they wipe out every man in that village, every man in that city. Not only did they wipe out every man, but they took every woman and every child captive. They enslaved them unto them. So here's the story where we pick up at the tail end of 35 and what's taking place at the beginning of 35. Let me just read those last two verses in 34 for you. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the parasites. My mom, excuse me, my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I shall be destroyed. I and my household. What is he doing? He's fretting. He is, his anxiety level is off the chart. And the reason it isn't, folks, he's got good reason. You know, some folks kind of go through this sort of sky in the pie approach to life and say, well, if you really talk about that and you tear about telling what's really, you're just not a person of faith. You're, you just need to quit having those conversations. You need to quit making it. Folks, it's reality. Reality is sometimes we find ourselves in the thick of it. Reality is that sometimes, sometimes we're responsible for it, sometimes we're not. But because of life situations and circumstances around us, things happen where we're troubled. We're troubled. 
And there's nothing wrong with being troubled. There's not a sin being troubled. There's no sin involved in the sense of being troubled and sense of reality and having an honest conversation and sitting down with somebody, a brother or sister in Christ, and says, here's where I am, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I'm dealing with. But not only is troubled, but once he starts that process, he starts walking down the road and said, look, the end of this is not only going to destroy me, that they're going to destroy my family. And I can promise you at this point in time, Jacob has no connection. He has no reflection on his Ebenezer, right? He's not thinking about the promise that's been made to him specifically at Bethel years in the past that God would bless him, that God would give him this land, and God would go with him, and God would protect him. And that's what happens when we get in that cycle of trouble, anxiety, worry, and fret. I'm not saying don't be honest about it, but I'm saying somehow in the midst of that, you can't lose the fact that you are sons and daughters of God, and He has promised to follow you and never to leave you and never forsake you, and He has promised that there is nothing that will come into your life, that He will not provide you a way out. But in the midst of the trouble... In the midst of despair, in the midst of the anxiety, I have the tendency to forget those things. And I doubt unless there's somebody here that's completely got this figured out, there's been times and areas in your life where you have or maybe you are or maybe in the future coming in which there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure upon you because of just the nature of living in this life and living in this fallen world to forget who we are and to allow anxiety to replace trust and commitment and faith and confidence. So let's look at his story here for just a moment. If you're looking at the portion of Scripture in 35, that God shows up in the midst of his trouble. And then, is that interesting to you? Jacob doesn't go looking for God here. If he does, I miss it in chapter 34. But he states this, I'm going to be destroyed. And his two brothers or his two sons say, well, should we let him treat our daughter that way? No, they shouldn't have. You know, there's a lot of things that we did not tell Daniel and Stephen about Sarah when she was growing up for fear of this type of thing happening. That's a joke. Brothers have a way to be very extremely defensive. Now, you can treat your sister any way you want, but don't let anybody else treat her that way, right? In regards to that, so it's interesting to me that the next thing we find in 35, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So the next thing that we see happening in the Scripture in this midst of trouble, despair, and anxiety is Jacob is God showing up with a plan. It doesn't say that Jacob started praying and fasting. Maybe if he did, but if he did, some reason the Holy Spirit didn't choose to record that in the Scripture. I've got my own opinion, and my own opinion is he was so busy fearing, fretting, and worrying about things that he didn't have the ability, the capacity to get himself back to the place where he could hear from God. So God took the initiative. Just like being lost. You know that? You ever wonder how lost people get into the kingdom of God? You know, right? So if you're here lost this morning, let me tell you there's some good news. You can't take the initiative. You can't work up enough desire to understand what you need to understand in order to get right with God. But God is a person. Jesus Christ is the one who will pursue you, and he'll give you understanding by opening your eyes to the Holy Spirit and say, Hey, you need Jesus. Here's what he'll say to you. Your life is a mess. The answer is Jesus Christ. That's it in a nutshell. But God has the ability, even in the life of believers, when you and I get to the point where we're being driven by trouble, anxiety, and fretting, God can show up with a plan. His plan was pretty straightforward. He says, I want you to get up. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Sometimes you just got to stand back up again. And then he says, once you get up, I want you to go. And then he says to him very specifically, I haven't got a place I want you to go. I want you to go to Bethel. Anybody know what Bethel means? This is 
test day, right? We already got Ebenezer down. By the way, David, that was a beautiful illustration on Ebenezer. Spiritually profound. What's Bethel mean? House of God. Place of God. How does Psalms 23 end? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's house is where God is present. Is where God abides. And for this particular place, and I know God is everywhere in all places and all things, but God says to him very specifically, there is a place that you named Bethel years back, Jacob, and I want you to go back to that place. Back to that place where you recognized I was present. Back to that place where once I spoke to you and gave you the dream that you set up and you made that altar and you worshipped and you knew that I would be present with you. I'm taking you all the way back to the place of promise where you realized and understood God is present here and in this place. I don't want to make too much about my own story, but it wouldn't be the first time that I did. After eight weeks of being unemployed, I needed to get back to the place of promise, right? Because I was someplace other than that. And I know God was there. I know that He was present. I know that He was speaking. But I needed Him to kind of ride, get me back up, stand me back up and say, Hey, you need to get back to that place where you know and you understand that I am here. And then He said, When you get to that place, I want you to make an altar. What's He going to do? When you get back there, I want you to worship. I want you to worship. How does the church worship? Three ways. One is that sense of revere, reverence. What you did in that collective of singing and praising and worshiping God, that's an aspect of worship. There are some aspects of worship that can only take place when God's people are gathered collectively. With that mindset, well, I can worship God wherever I can please, that's true. But there's some things that only happens where two or three or more are gathered in His name and when people are lifting up their voices in song and praise and adoration to the Lord. The second aspect of worship we'll see in the Scripture as well is God reveals Himself in the midst of worship. So we worship, we create that halo effect, God comes in, He reveals, He begins to start speaking to our hearts and our minds. What do you think the third aspect of worship is? Responding to what He reveals. If we don't, then everything else is just an empty exercise. We can shout, we can sing, we can praise, we can quote Scripture. We can even go in a way knowing that we've heard a definite word from God as we've been together as God's people. And I'm not just talking about hearing the word during this time set aside. But if we are truly going to worship, then there must be a response We have to take what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the Scripture and through one another and through the teachings of Christ, and we have to make an intentional decision and choice in our part to do what God has spoken to us about. And, folks, that is the highest form of worship. In fact, it's the first act of worship for anybody who comes into the kingdom of God, to believe in God and to believe in His Son whom He has sent. That's eternal life. That's worship. There has to be a response into what he says to us in regards to that. So here's his response. So Jacob said to his household, verse number 2, All of you who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's some things that they were going to do before they took off on their journey. One of the things that he said to them was, So he said to this household, All of you who are with him, put away your foreign gods. Now, weren't these gods covenant people? Absolutely. What's he talking about in foreign gods? You'll see in the next couple of verses over, you got people bringing idols, you got people taking earrings off that may have some sort of charm in it or may have the gods themselves in it. But they had absorbed all these foreign gods and all these practices in the land in which they were dwelling. In fact, the truth of the matter is, their culture had more influence over them than God was having over their lives. In your life, in my life, it's really difficult in all that we see going on and all that's taking place that sometimes... Culture has more influence on us than God's truth and God's word and God's presence and God's people has over us. And sometimes culture has more influence over us than we have over it. You ever felt that way? 
And yet we gather together and nothing can stand against the name of Christ. Every knee one day will bow, every tongue will confess that nothing can be raised up against the name of Christ. And yet often in our day-to-day routine, we feel like our feelings are not factual and feelings are often contradictory to faith. But our feeling like is that we're not winning this thing, we're not moving forward, we're not having any influence. But the truth of the matter is, if you and I will return to the place of promise and God's presence and hear from Him and be obedient, God will bring forth fruit. God will bring forth fruit every single time. Now, it may not be on your timetable or my timetable. You may not get the fruit that you think you should get, or it may look different. But if you will stay faithful to the cause of Christ, if you will get up and if you will put things out of your life and away from your life that you know are more culture-driven and are more driven by a lost world than it is being conformed to the image of God and the image of Christ, God will move, God will act, and God will change lives every single time. Every single time. He also tells them that there needs to be a sense of purification. Cleanse yourself. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, but the Scripture says for believers, if we would continue to confess our sins, that the blood of Jesus Christ will continually cleanse us from all sins, right? We continue to walk in the light. We continue to walk in fellowship. We continue to walk in intimacy with Him. If it is not part of your minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day, week-by-week ritual to confess sin, then the truth of the matter is there's probably some things in your life that need to be confessed. I know there is in mine. By the time I get through preaching, I'll have a whole list of things I'll need to confess, right? So going back in that sense of purging themselves, cleansing themselves, that we come back as believers and we put everything under the blood of Christ and we ask His forgiveness, and God will continue to keep us in that fellowship and intimacy in Him with Him so that we can move forward with Him and produce fruit. So jump down to verse 3 with me for just a moment. i got to pick up the pace. <clears throat> and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the way of my distress and has been with me where I have gone. See what's already beginning to happen with him? He's already beginning to make some decisions. He's already beginning to speak the word to those around him. And already he's beginning to go, hey, when we get there, we're going to build an altar, we're going to worship. But I want to remind you that here's the God who's answered me in my distress. And here's the one that's going to be with me wherever I go. Now, why is that significant? It's significant we look at the next couple of verses is once we've made the decision, once we've allowed God to keep us, allowed God to get us back on track, and we start moving down that road, what happens? Obstacles, barriers, temptation, deceit. And there has to be a sense of knowing that when we go, that just because we've heard a word, just because we've recommitted our lives to the Lord, just because, once again, we're trusting in Him and we're walking with Him, does not mean that you and I are going to hit 100 that we're going to have to be at 100%. Does this make sense? Because I promise you, that's when it really starts getting hairy, right? That's when the phone quits ringing. That's sometimes when the support quits coming. You might say, all right, I got this, Lord. I'm going to trust you. And then the next thing you know, here comes some other trial. Here comes some other peace that's laid upon you. And you go, man, what's in the world going on? Look at verse 4 and 5, and, and look what took place with these guys. So first of all, they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods, which they had had, their rings and their... Uh, which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak. That's all, they're putting away all those idols from them. Look at verse 5. And as their journey, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You remember what Jacob was worried about all the way back into the first chapter? People are going to destroy me. When we set out on a journey, and we're fixing to travel through pagan land, for lack of a better word, that fear and that anxiety that comes, 
is that, all right, if I do this, what's it going to cost me? If I do this, what's going to happen? So he's got all his women and his children lined out. He's got his men who are already outnumbered by all his enemies around them. And they're fixing to leave, for lack of a better word, their fortified camp or their place of protection, their home. And they're fixing to have to journey back through this land to get back to Bethel. And I guarantee you, when you set off on that journey and not really knowing what's going to be in between point A and point B, anxiety begins to happen. God forgive me, I'm going to go ahead and confess this up front. I'm going to quote an article from the Huffington Post, which I think they're just... Anybody here work for the Huffington Post? You blog on their line or anything? Okay. They, they did a little article in there and said, now there's scientific proof that 85% of the things that we worry about never comes to pass. I go, well, that's interesting. You know, you can Google anything. So there's actually a survey out there, and what they did, they took a group of people, and they followed them for an extended period of time, and they said, we want you to write down everything that you worry about. And then after you come to the end of this time, that those things that you worried about, if they kind of resolve themselves or they work themselves out or they were not anything to worry about, then we want you to record that. So they did that for an extended period of time. You know what they found out? That 85% of the things that they worried about never came to be an issue whatsoever. It was just wasted time and energy. Isn't it great that Philippians tell you don't be anxious for anything through prayer and supplication, make your request known unto God. And I, I know it's easy to throw that out there. A lot harder to do and live out, right? But 85%, out of those 85%, now that they take it to the next level, 79% of the things that did come about out of that 100% they were worrying about, you staying with me so far? 85% never came about. So out of the 15%, 79 of those things, 79% of those things, they were able to handle, they had the resources, or they were not as bad as they thought they would be. So now we're up to the point of 97%, right? 97% of the things that most people worry about, the vast majority never come to pass, or the small percentage that does, people are equipped and have the resources to deal with them. So that leaves 3%, right? So let me ask you a question. Why do we worry? Why do we fret? Now, I understand, and I don't want to contradict myself, reality sometimes, we're in a situation, well, this is worth worrying about. If you just knew what my situation was, you'd be anxious too. I get that, and I understand that. Here's what the remedy that they offered for it, and then we're going to flip over for just briefly to Psalms 37 because I think God has a little bit better remedy. But here's what they suggested. They said, envision on your hand three buttons, a red button, and I think it was a blue button and a green button. So the next time you start worrying about something, you push the red button. This is the uh, the approach. You stop it. Stop worrying about it. It also says, says breathe first. Breathe a couple of times. Stop worrying about it. Okay, then you imagine pushing the yellow button. Okay, now that I've quit worrying about it, let me look at some options. Let me look at some alternatives. And you take a couple more deep breaths, and then you push the green button. Is this working for y'all? I, I don't see anybody writing this down. <laughs> you push the green button, you go, it's another day. Tomorrow's a new day. I'm just going to move forward. It's going to be all right. It's all going to work out. There's another guy that recommended, and this is my favorite of all things, think of three things that could be worse. I tried this. Bobby and I were practicing one time. It didn't work for her, and it didn't work very well for me. But what kind of solution is that, right? So it, whatever your situation is, you're sitting there and we'll go, it could always be worse. You know, have you ever had anybody tell you that? Uh, folks, I hear it all the time, and I particularly hear it with people who are well-meaning people who are dealing with folks who are grieving, who has just lost somebody they loved, and, and they say the bizarrest things sometimes. And they mean well. They mean well, but they say, well, you know, well, at least they didn't. You're already behind the eight ball, right? Instead of just taking a paraclete approach, right, 
Word for the Holy Spirit, a comforting approach and drawing alongside of somebody and being present with them and just walking with them. But here, I think, is a better remedy. And, and Psalms 37, it gives you at least seven things. And you don't have to turn there because I'm going to run off them really quick. But this begins with, do not fret because of evildoers. But there's another verse in verse number 9, verse number 8. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. So if someone's going to come to you as a believer and a Christian, or if someone's going to recommend you an article from the Huffington Post and say, hey, just imagine those little buttons or imagine something that could be worse, there's a better remedy for fretting. And here's what it says in regards to the Psalms. First it says, trust in the Lord and do good. So there's your first antidote for fretting. And I'm not saying it's going to relieve everything that's going on and taking place with you. What I'm trying to say, you kind of get back to a Jacob role and you start seeing what's God's plan and what's God's purpose and you start reprogramming your mind, transforming your spirit by the renewing of God's word. So the first thing you're going to do and foremost is going to be trust the Lord. And guys, that's easy to throw out there. I've been throwing it out to myself week after week after week. By the way, I have a job now, thank God. I'm having to drive two hours a day to get there and get back. But... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's it. We're staying till twelve. Everybody else can leave. But no. the trust in the Lord. Rely upon Him. Have confidence in Him. And guys, then here's the next thing. It says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Bobby told me this morning, one of the things that will help us more than anything with anxiety, worry, and fret, and struggling, get out there and do something for somebody else. Make a difference in somebody's life. And folks, isn't it interesting that they already can prove statistically as well? I know you can prove anything by statistics, but people who get in depression, that one of the things they ask them, what would you do if you were not depressed? And if they get out and actually doing those things, not because they feel like doing them, but because it makes a difference in their life when they're doing things, and particularly doing things for other people. That's all the Scripture is saying. Instead of fretting, trust the Lord. Instead of fretting, get out there and do something. Sow some seeds. Do something that will make a difference. And he keeps going on. Then he says, commit your way to the Lord. So commit your way to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit them on the front end. You know, not when you're in a funk, not when you're trying to struggle through it, but when those times come in, you say, Lord, whatever it is you'd have me to do, I want to commit myself to you, my way, my thinking, be your will, your purpose, your direction. And then he comes back and reinforces again after commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. We can't get out of that trusting sort of relationship ever. He comes on with a couple of other things. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. How many of you great at waiting? Eight weeks was an eternity. There's one person back there that's fantastic at waiting. You can stay till 12.30, brother. 12, 12.30 if somebody will keep a list. Wait patiently for the Lord. Rest in Him. Then He comes back and He says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. If you fret long enough, if you stay in that cycle long enough of worry and concern and all the things that could possibly happen to you outside of the fact of trusting, committing, resting, abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I promise you, you will end up at a place, even as a believer, that you do not want to be. I don't believe you'll stay there forever because what is the Holy Spirit going to do? God's going to come along and discipline you. The Holy Spirit's going to work in your life. He's going to keep you. He's going to keep His promises to you. But you don't want to go down that road. I was mad for two years one time. Two years. Almost to the date. Man, I mean, I was hopping mad. You know what happened? Clinical depression. I don't believe in depression. Well, you get it. You'll believe in it. <laughs> I didn't believe in it either. 
I was memorizing Scripture, quoting Scripture, and I go, man, I can't be depressed. I'm a child of God. The Spirit of God lives within me. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I was clinically depressed. You don't know why? You're going to throw me out. But I was pissed off. I was angry. I figured my son can say, boob from up here, I can say pissed off. Were y'all here when he said that? Ask him later, okay? But angry. And what does anger do to you? Anger leads you to a place Instead of walking in a fellowship and intimacy, not only with God, but with other people. And as soon as I came to the place where a well-meaning, retired Methodist minister drew alongside of me and said, Mike, you know, I'm going to pray for you because I told him I was angry. He didn't condemn me. He didn't start saying, oh, don't let the anger go down and you're going to give the devil an opportunity. Mike, it's wrong for you to be angry. He just said, I'm going to pray for you. He ran into the kitchen out of the old Methodist church that I was in. I was Baptist at the time. Come running out of there with cooking oil, rubbed it on my head and started praying for me. Two days later, I'm not as angry as I was. I'm beginning to move back in the direction where God would have me to be. A week or two later, relationships around me. I'm beginning to treat people differently again. You know, when you're mad and you're angry and you're fretting, you don't treat people well. And it's hard to treat people well because when you're angry and you're fretting and you're mad all the time, you're depending on your resources and your ability. And what you're serving them out of your communion cup is not Christ. It's not the Spirit of God. It's what you got. And folks, I promise you that what I got is not sufficient to make a difference. He comes back and tells them once again to wait upon the Lord and that the Lord himself that, that we will inherit the land. Let's go back to Jacob for just a minute. Y'all doing all right? Okay. So one of his main fears is that they would be destroyed. He starts out through the land, and what happens? It's that halo effect, <laughs> right? I don't know if they were singing or dancing or what they were doing. I don't think they were doing any of those things. Probably Some of them were probably looking back over their shoulder, right, looking around. Probably still some measure of anxiety. There's some other things taking place. Guys, it's ridiculous to say that everybody in the Scripture, once they make a commitment and they start moving forward, that all of a sudden they become superhuman and super spiritual. They are men and women, boys and girls, just like you and me. And when we're honest, we realize that we struggle and we have difficulties. And we continually point people back to the resourcefulness of Christ, God's promises, God's commitment. But it's interesting to me here that that halo effect took place because God allowed a great fear and dread to take place on all those pagans that were surrounding them. You know, all those people that they were worried about, not one of them raised a hand. Not one of them came after them. Because God makes a promise to us that he's also going to protect us. Now, hear me very clearly. That doesn't mean there's not going to be hardships. doesn't mean there's not going to be difficulty. It does not mean that you're not going to physically die unless you make it to the rapture. I don't know what your view on the rapture is here, but that's what I'm hanging on. I don't want and then we're still going to be changed, right? We're going to be transformed. But there is going to be difficulty and there's going to be hardship. But when God speaks to us and God gives us direction, our fear and anxiety of what might happen should not prevent us from moving forward and being obedient to Christ. That's why the church is stagnant today. That's why you and I are stagnant today. That's why you and I, when we're bombarded by all the bad news, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we're not having any influence or having any shape or fashion on this thing anymore. You know why the Lord hasn't showed up yet from a biblical perspective? Because He's patient and kind. He's not willing for any to be lost. But He wants all to come to a place of repentance. God's still in the business. Until He returns, He's still bringing people into the kingdom. And you and I have a responsibility, no matter how dangerous or unpopular it may be, or no matter how much anxiety it may create in us, we have an opportunity and we have the responsibility to move forward in obedience to God, and part of that obedience to Him is sharing. So let me do some quick summary. So Jacob gets up, verse number 6. 
And he comes to Bethel, which is the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. What's the first thing we do? What's the first thing that Jacob does when he shows up? He builds that altar. Guys, he's setting the stage for worship. Now, I can't speak from a feeling perspective or a physical energy perspective, any of those things. All I know is that when Jacob showed up back to the place where he realized in his own personal experiences, this is where I met God. This is God's house. This is God's presence. And when he got there, he built an altar and he worshiped because this is the place where God revealed himself to him. We're going back in the past right now. One of the main things that will sustain you and I as believers, both individually and collectively, when we're struggling and we're at the place where maybe it's difficult for us to hear. You ever been in a place where it's hard to hear God's will, God's word, God's purpose? Uh, I have. And, you know, I've, I've been there more than I want to be. But I do know this. I can always go back to the place where God revealed himself to me. You heard my testimony, whether you knew it or not. I was raised in church all my life. I had two friends that started sharing the gospel with me in the Air Force. Bobby's father was a pastor and started coming out there every other Sunday and preaching a Bible study. One day I went to church. Uh, I can't tell you the text or the context, but I can tell you what happened during the invitation. The invitation was the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Mike, your life is a mess and Jesus Christ is the answer. So when I really struggle, I go back to that place. Mike, your life is a mess. Jesus is the answer. Folks, and that does not change. Whatever your situation and whatever your circumstances look like, one of the antidotes for you and I to get through those difficult, troubling times is to go back to the place where God has revealed Himself to us. Go back to the last spoken word that you heard from Christ. I'm assuming you heard some this morning before we got started, right? Or maybe a week, week before last, but we've got to keep going back to that place. We've got to keep going back to that place where we know that we heard from God and we know that we heard a word from Him. And that word is not contradictory of this. And your experience is not so unique that it's out of sort with the body of Christ and other believers. You go back to that place where God has revealed to you and where God has spoken to you. So He goes back to that place. And then there's this short little interlude in there. And during this time... During this time Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died right in the middle of the journey, getting there, building the altar, going back to the place where God has revealed to him. What happens? Life keeps happening. Every single time, life keeps happening. You know, guys, and there's, there's no solution for that. There's no way to avoid life. And I promise you, when you get back on the journey and you get back on the road and you go back to reclaiming those promises, when you get back to the place where God has revealed His Son to you and you reflect on those things and you're trying to trust the Lord and get back on track, life is always going to throw something in there, some sort of kink, some sort of dilemma. And if it doesn't, one of the favorite, adversary's favorite kinks is to think you've got this so handled and you're so spiritual that you have arrived. And then you get to the place where you got arrogance in your life instead of love, and you're completely and totally useless to God and His plan and His purpose. There's a thousand and one things that will keep us from getting off track. But the good news is, even in the midst of that, verse number 9, then God appeared to Jacob again, and He made a promise to him, and He blessed him. Well, that's why we stay on the road. We stay on that pathway. We stay on the straight and narrow. And I'm saying, you stay, you stay, you stay. You know what really happens? Go back and read John 14, 15, and 16. You know who keeps you? God the Father. Jesus Christ kept every one of the ones that God the Father gave him except Judah so the, the Judas so the Scripture could be kept. 
But Christ kept them. And even when he transitioned over, he says, my, your advantage of going back, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's going to seal you, and the Holy Spirit's going to keep you. And the Holy Spirit's going to take everything that I've taught you and bring it to your remembrance. And he's going to take the things of mine. He's going to open your heart and mind. You and I are a kept people. And if you don't like being kept, <laughs> you're in the wrong place. You have to be kept. It's God's work, and it's God's purpose. So he shows up to Jacob, and he speaks again, and he makes a promise to him. Now, we're almost done. Hang in there. Hang in there, man. Hang in there. We're going to make it all right, man. When we get to 1135, that's eight minutes, you do this. Okay? You don't even have a watch. I picked the right guy. So he goes back, and basically, it's a repeat of the promise that he made the first time he was in Bethel. I'm going to give you this land. I made a promise to your father. I'm going to keep that promise to you. And from you there's going to flow some things that are going to alter and change the world. So let me look at this last point, and we're done. So we've looked at the fact of that sense of reverence, that worship, in spite of difficulties and hardship. We, we looked at the reality in verse 9 that God shows up again and reveals himself to Jacob. I want you to look at Jacob's response in verse number 14. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it, and he also poured oil on it. That word pillar, guys, you want a great word? It's an Ebenezer. It, it's something to remember the covenant that God is making with Jacob. It's something that recalls our hearts and our minds to recall God's faithfulness, what God has said to us. Daniel taught me through a friend. He said, anytime you have an opportunity to preach, you've got to always get to the gospel. My son, who recently lost... Uh, a child, him and his wife, been trying for seven years, seven months in, roughly seven months in, no heartbeat, induced, delivered, a child, stillborn. Uh, watching him go through that, watching some of the things all of our family has been through, but I was sitting in that service next to my oldest son, and the preacher said, well, I asked Krista and Stephen what they wanted from that, and they said, preach the gospel. Folks, when all else fails, that's our Ebenezer. We've got to get back to that Ebenezer pillar-shaped cross and an empty tomb, the gospel message. And I promise you, that is the thing that puts everything in perspective. That is the response that we go back and we recall and we remember and we remind one another of things. Paul says, it's not a great challenge for me to remind you of these things, Timothy, because we as God's people need to be reminded. And the more hairier it gets and the more difficulty we're going through, the more we need to be reminded to go back and look at the cross and say, was it sufficient? Yes, it was sufficient. Look at the empty grave. It verifies that He is indeed the Son of God who not only gave Himself for us, but rose again and now is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. And not only that, but once He got back into the heavenly realm, He says, I will send the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit will be a comforter to you, and He will teach you, and He will walk with you. Folks, you and I have not been forgotten. We have not been abandoned. But in times of difficulty, we have got to get back to those Ebenezer's, to those covenant places, to the place where God has promised and committed ourselves to Him. The other aspect of this in regards to that is it says that not only did He establish the pillar, but He poured out a libation. Libation. Some of you may be looking at translation that says drink offering. You know what a drink offering is? 
It was symbolic of the individual who was worshiping, who has just entered into a covenant relationship with God that God has promised to keep and that God has promised not to forsake and be with and be through. But the libation portion of it is was taking a cup of wine or taking something and pouring it over that pillar saying, I am pouring out my life in dedication to the God who has committed himself to see me through. And folks, that's where we miss the mark on so many occasions during stressful times. We can come back and we can call and we can think and we can hear the songs, but we don't get to the place of responding in such a way of saying, Lord, I'm dedicating my life to you again. Now you say, okay, I know he's Southern Baptist. He's talking about rededicating your life. Folks, I've rededicated my life till my rededicator's worn out. But it's a lot like confessing, right? Because we constantly need to come back and be reminded, I have been bought with the price, I have been purchased by the blood of Christ, that I am not my own anymore, that He is not only Savior, but He is what? He is Lord. And we got a world full of people, one out of every four in the United States, claiming to be born again into the kingdom of God. And I promise you that 10% of the population is not present in God's house because it's too much trouble, it's too much work, because they are not willing to allow the Holy Spirit of God to strengthen them so that they can take their life and rededicate it back to God again and pour their life out in such a way that it's going to make a difference to somebody else. Because we are self-centered. We are cut off. We ask, what a way to end the sermon, right? (laughs) But God has a better plan for us and for me. And you know what? He never rejects it. When we come, Lord, here's my life. Again, I give it to you. Here's my family's life. Again, I give it to you. Here's my neighbor. We just constantly keep coming back to that place of promise. And we keep constantly laying our life on the altar as he gives us the ability and the strength to do so. And as he keeps us. I got two more minutes. It's really one eleven thirty-three, right? You know why I'm giving this to you? Because a minute it's going to go off where you can't see anything. You'll have to have the code in there to actually know what time it is. <laughs> Can I give you John fourteen, fifteen, sixteen in a nutshell? Abide in Christ, remain in Christ, rest in Christ, keep the Father's commandments just as Christ kept the Father's commandments. If you do so. You'll abide in His love. Abide in the love of Christ. Love others the way Christ did love you. It all comes back to abiding, remaining, trusting, resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we find a God and a Savior and a Lord who we know and acknowledge and experience to completely, totally adequate for anything that you and I face and we encounter. We step out of that abiding, trusting, resting relationship and other things begin to have more influence over us than God himself. Can we pray together and then, David, come on, sit down, man. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that most here, and Lord, hopefully all, have that special place in our lives where we can go back where we heard from you and where you made a promise to us that if we would just merely trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God was, that he was raised, that you'll save us that you'll forgive us, that you will carve out that place in which we can continually come back to and say, here's the place where God expressed his faithfulness to me. And he is a God who cannot do anything else other than be faithful. So take us each to that place again. Renew our hearts and minds and the salvation that you've given us. And Lord, if there be one here that does not know you today, I pray that the day may not end, that they wouldn't get on the phone or catch somebody by the side and say, "How? how do I establish that place in a relationship with God? Because all of those who call upon your name, Father, all who will come and offer themselves to you, that you don't reject a one. And, Lord, help us as your people 
Help us to be an encouragement, a strength, a comfort to one another. Help us where that feelings and culture and all the other influences around us would always take a second or a third or a fourth seat next to you and your son and your word and your spirit. Influence us that we might be an influence on others. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And can we thank Mike again for being here? It's just one of the things I absolutely love about the body of Christ, that that although um, Mike is not a regular part of this body here, he is still a brother in Christ. Um, and what a blessing to have him come and encourage us through the word of God this morning. So thank you guys again for being here. It was truly a blessing and a good word from the Lord. Um, I love what he said about worship, how um, as we worship God, God speaks and reveals himself to us, and then what do we do? We, we respond. And I, I um, am willing to bet that God has spoken to a lot of you uh, this morning, uh, and whether it's about fret or fear or anxiety or, or something else, um, I know that the Lord has spoken to a lot of you. And so I want to challenge you and myself um, to, uh, to do what the author of Hebrews exhorts us to, that if today you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, I want to challenge us to to go home uh, today and and to to really pray and ask the Lord um, to show us and reveal to us um, how we should respond to His Word that He's blessed us with today.